Bitcoin is a form of politically neutral money that can't be controlled by a nation state. And for that reason, it's very well suited as a money that's used both internally for trade within free cities and internationally or intercity for, for trade between different free cities. So I think that Bitcoin is an incredibly important tool that will be used to make free cities grow. Uh, it has already been adopted within them. I think it's an important tool to make free cities happen, but also the values that Bitcoiners tend to have, like they, they tend to believe in voluntary interactions. They believe in sovereignty over, over money. They don't like the fact that most monies are inflationary. They don't like the fact that powerful centralized entities can uh, censor people's transactions. All of that is, is, is true of, of free cities as well. Before we dive into the show, we'd just like to mention a couple of our show's sponsors, things that we care about quite a bit and that we think are useful to Bitcoiners all over. So first up is the Orange Pill app. Download the Orange Pill app today from the orangepillapp.com. Yeah, Orange Pill app. Woo Rocket ship, get on board. It's available for iOS and Android. Stack friends and meet like-minded people near you. Connect with your favorite Bitcoiners and speed up hyper-Bitcoinization. We're really excited about the Orange Pill app and its potential to connect Bitcoiners in their local area. Download the Orange Pill app. It's not a dating app, but you can use it for dating. Download now. Next up is Wasabi Wallet. It's a great desktop wallet that has privacy by default and CoinJoin built in so that it recycles your UTXOs around so that no one knows who you are after it's done the process. Check out wasabiwallet.io. Make sure that that's the actual link you check out because there are scammers out there who want to steal your Bitcoin, but it works in the background. Tor is built in. And when you send coins to it, the coins you take out are private. So download Wasabi Wallet today. I'm wearing these shades in tribute to Wasabi Wallet because your OPSEC is important. So I'm totally anonymous now, just so you know. Hey, Luke, can you tell our listeners a bit more about the Consensus Network, the platform that this show is on? And it also happens to be the publishing house that publishes my books. What is the Consensus Network, Luke? Thanks, Knut. The Consensus Network is a Bitcoin-only publisher and translator, in other words, translates Bitcoin books into all sorts of languages. Anyone who's interested in translating a book into their language can get in touch with the Consensus Network to help translate and spread the Bitcoin message throughout the world. We have lots of great examples here. Knut's books are some of the most popular on the site. That's Spanish and German that he's holding up right now. There's Finnish. That's how I got connected with Consensus Network of all the random things. Don't forget to check out consensus.network or bitcoinbook.shop to see everything that Consensus has to offer. That's bitcoinbook.shop. Use the affiliate code FOOTPRINT for 10% off. Knut, can you tell us about how to get in touch with you and find out more about your stuff and the things that you're involved in these days? 
Yeah, sure, Luke. You find most of my Bitcoin stuff on uh, Twitter. So I'm at Knut Svanum on Twitter. I also have a website, knutsvanum.com, where you can find all of my books. There's a whole bunch of books. These old two ones, Sovereignty Through Mathematics and Independence Reimagined, are being rehashed into one book that's coming out later this spring with a foreword by Prince Philip. I'm also making a wine. I'm not making this wine, but this is a wine bottle with a Bitcoin B on it that you can sign up for on my website. And you can also find all sorts of everything divided merch if you're interested in that. So uh, that's how you support me. Thanks, Knut. And with that, let's dive into the Freedom Footprint Show. Hello and welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. We're concerned about your freedom footprint and we want to help you spread as much freedom dioxide as possible. I'm your host, Luke the Pseudofin, and I'm here as always with Knut Svanholm. Good evening, Knut. Good evening, Luke. Good to be here. Good to see you again. It's been a while. It has been a while. We're starting to get uh, some some gaps. We've been recording a lot these days. It's been nice. Yeah. So we're used to doing one every day almost, and now it's been almost a week. So, uh, but we have a great guest tonight, Mr. Peter Young of the Free Cities Foundation and a fellow praxeologist <laughs> and a fellow board member of the Free Madeira organization as well. So welcome, Peter. Hi, guys. Good to be back with you again. Good to see you again. Last time we saw each other in real life was at conference in Prague, the Libertina Lifetime conference in Prague, back in whenever that was. <laughs> it? October, yeah. But that's that's a bit of a lie. We, we had a conversation a couple of weeks back also. We had a video call. Let's call it that. <laughs> so uh, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Gearing up for Christmas. Yeah. Good to be chatting again. Where are you going to spend Christmas? Well, all the free cities were booked. So I'm actually in the UK <laughs> oh, working on changing the UK into a free city. In, in, uh, in a, a costly city. <laughs> costly city. Why costly city? Uh, as opposed to free. <laughs> oh, I see. Yes. There's no yeah, such thing so. as a free Christmas. All right. So, uh, Tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about the Free Cities Foundation, please. Okay, well, um, yeah, I've, I started off my career living and working in China, working with the British Embassy and with some companies that were UK companies that were selling products into China. And in about 2017, I got introduced to the ideas of the Austrian School of Economics and I discovered Bitcoin at the same time. and. Through that, my ideas about economics, politics, philosophy changed a bit, and I became very interested in alternative ways of organizing society. And through that, I discovered the Free Cities Foundation, which is an organization that is changing governance by supporting small territories that are exercising their autonomy in a more voluntarist direction. So creating systems that maximize the ability of people to trade peacefully with each other without outside interference, without coercion, without regulation. That's something I've been working on for about two years now as the, as a managing director. Yeah, we support projects like, uh, Prospera Morazan in Honduras, um, the Free Madeira project. Uh, small intentional communities in countries like Norway, Montenegro, 
and Germany. And I like to think that we're one of the few organizations that's implementing the ideas of the Austrian School of Economics in the real world. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, uh, you mentioned you found Bitcoin in China. I'm, I'm curious how that came up and then how that led to how you, you started working with the Free Cities Foundation or what the story is there. Can you get, go into a little more detail about how that happened? Well, I was working at the time for the British Embassy on fairly mainstream stuff related to trade and investment. So I was helping British companies to go to China and sell their products into the Chinese market. And I was I had a fairly mainstream view about the value of all of that and that it was fair for the taxpayers to support international trade to encourage, you know, to boost exports and all this stuff. And I just ended up meeting a couple of what I would describe as like pretty based Bitcoiners in the, the co-working space in, in Beijing. And uh, I was used to always being the most like free market oriented person in the conversation up until this point, even though I would say I was pretty middle of the road. And then suddenly I was getting arguments coming from the other side, like more free market than I was. They're saying, yeah, we shouldn't have government funding for science. We shouldn't have government funding for international trade. And I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to engage with this as a serious argument. And I did. And they basically produced really good, clean, like logical arguments. And I've always taken the view that if someone it gives you a, an argument that you can't refute, then you should change your mind because otherwise you're just stuck in your ways. You become entrenched. You stop learning. So the way to learn is to, to change your mind when, when someone out argues you. And basically I was out argued and I, then I like looked more into that position, uh, and realized that actually it was, it was the, the position that made much more, much more sense. And those people happen to be Bitcoiners as well. And so kind of in tandem with rethinking my views on Austrian economics, uh, I was also learning about, okay, well, if we are thinking that free markets are the best way of organizing society, then there's also this really interesting new tool called Bitcoin for harnessing that power. And so I ended up just like going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and going down the Austrian economics rabbit hole at the same time. Nice. That, that, uh, yeah, a, a tweet is coming to my mind. Uh, the, the Bitcoin, uh, what's more important than the Bitcoin base layer is the Bitcoin based layer, which is, <laughs> which, which is Bitcoin's layer of users, of based users that refuse to give in to any pressure. That's, that's the most crucial layer, the based layer. This, this is a nice tie into how you met Saifedean because you worked with Saifedean for a while as well. Yeah, still doing the odd bit of work with, with Saifedean, but I did, I was working quite a lot for him last year. I met Saifedean because I read the Bitcoin standard and I somehow heard that he was doing an online course. And at the time it was just a load of plebs and Saifedean on a Zoom call, like me and like Daniel Prince, Timothy Allen. Gigi. Uh, oh, Gigi was there. Yeah, he was, I think he was. Like there was one that was slightly earlier as well that I didn't get on. I didn't get on. Um, but yeah, I did the economics 11 course, which was the, the first economics course. And it was, it was kind of random, but really good. Like we all, all these, this very diverse group of, of random people that were interested in Bitcoin for different reasons. Alan Farrington was another one. Yeah. 
we we were all just kind of brought our own uh, own thing to this discussion, and it was just an every like a drumbeat of a of a cool thing that I look forward to every week. And I got really into it because Saferdine is phenom- a phenomenal praxeologist. I would argue, you know, it's him and Hopper really are like the best uh, in terms of the way they write in in the modern day. I would argue, and he 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 articulates this stuff really really well. And so I was kind of reading his stuff. I was then using that as a, a way of accessing the classic works in the Austrian school, starting off with what has government done to our money by Murray Rothbard, but then going uh, into like human action, uh, man economy and state. And those are just like, they just kind of cement everything into a really good framework. So Saifedean was instrumental in, uh, in it. And I would recommend anyone listening to check out his courses and check out his books. Yeah, I can recommend that very same course myself because I took it the you know, a year after you, I guess, uh, with another yeah. a different group of people. But it's a really good course and he's a really good teacher. And I love the fact that he refused to grade people. That's a fiat thing. That's not my job. My job is to teach you something. Uh, and I really like that attitude. So there'll be no grades. So if... Don't expect a, a, a nice diploma to frame and hang on your wall after the course, but, but take it anyway. It's a really, really good course. And they, yeah, we all love Seyfedin and his Seyfedinisms. He has a uh, few filters when it comes to telling the truth <laughs> and we, we all love him for it. But maybe you've heard, but I, I started writing a book about praxeology. I find, uh, find the subject so fascinating and uh, the most fascinating part about it is really that so few people are uh, even know about it, even though it's yeah. such a basic understanding of uh, human behavior and it should be absolutely, it, it should be in every school curriculum uh, ever created. But w- w- when you learn about it, you can quickly you quickly realize why why it isn't taught in schools because there wouldn't really be public schools if if the ideas of the Austrian school were implemented anywhere. So we wouldn't have any of the coercive methods of uh, of anything really. It's it, it's a way of explaining why voluntary or consensual in exchange between people is always preferable to uh, to, to violent ones or coercive ones. And there's a whole lot to unpack there. I, I think it was Rob Breedlove who, who told me that, like, just during a casual conversation, that, that uh, uh, praxeology is to the subjective what mathematics is to the objective. And I think that's the perfect framing. So, so I immediately stole that. Uh, <laughs> Describe the experience of discovering uh, praxeology in Austrian economics. What clicked and w- what happened when you fell down that rabbit hole? So just to provide a definition, I would see it as the science of value or the study of value as determined by humans. So it's how we understand the way that humans cooperate and make choices under conditions of scarcity. And the reason why we have a special word for it is that it's what we call in philosophy an a priori science. So it's a science that is purely deductive. You have a couple of principles that you start with, a couple of axioms that you start with, and then the entire thing after that follows through logical deduction. So for that reason, 
it's kind of controversial whether you call it a science or whether you call it a study or a framework or a methodology. I kind of prefer the second actually, because I think science is more directly empirical. So dealing with propositions that can be falsified directly in the real world. But I think basically there's a, if you're trying to work out whether a statement is true, you need to have two things. You need to make sure firstly, that this statement is framed in a logically consistent way. And secondly, you need to work out whether the statement is telling you something true about the real world uh, in, in an empirical sense, in a way that can be falsified. And we often assume that a lot of things we believe about the world relate to that second kind. So it's like scientists putting propositions out there, putting hypotheses out there, and then trying to falsify them. But actually, I think a lot of the mistakes we make are actually just in the, in the logical area that comes before that. We just are putting like inconsistent frameworks out as a way of potentially understanding the world. And actually a lot of those frameworks, like I would argue, you know, the Keynesian framework for understanding economics, they actually have logical fallacies built into them from the early stage. So you can know that they're not true without actually having to test them, even though when you do test them, they also prove to be um, not very uh, predictably good. So I think for me, um, the question was, how, what did it feel like to understand praxeology? It was, it was uh, a process of kind of grappling with lots of questions about economics for a long, long time. And then suddenly having this penny drop moment where a lot of these inconsistencies that have been plaguing my thinking suddenly had a, had a light shone on them. And I realized, oh, okay, there is actually an alternative, logically consistent way to think about value and to think about human interaction, think about economics. Yeah. To clarify even further, like the opposite of an a priori science is called an a posteriori science. And that's most sciences. Like, as you say, they, they, uh, rely on empirical evidence and that you can test them and, and show them to be more or less true by, by having them reviewed by your peers and, uh, other people repeating the same experiment as, as you do, and then compare the results and draw conclusions from that. And that is how all other sciences work, really. There are some a priori science sciences. I would say that mathematics falls into the category of a priori, an a priori science as well, if done properly. I mean, you don't really test the results of mathematics. You, you, uh, you come to the conclusion by proving that it couldn't be otherwise than whatever your, your statement is. And maybe we should give the listeners some examples of these axioms that you can't argue against. The argument axiom is one of my favorite, by, uh, by the way, I'm deep diving into that at the moment. The first axiom of praxeology, I believe, is that human action is purposeful behavior. So to, to quote Christopher Hitchens, uh, of course, we have free will. We have no choice but to have it. Uh, this is like the, the, the starting point. If you assume that the assumption we make is that we have free will, because otherwise not only praxeology but would be pointless, but pretty much everything would be pointless if we didn't have free will. So we assume that we have free will and therefore human action, when, when we do something that is not just a, um, a, what's it, an instinct or, or, or a reaction to a physical impulse, that's human action and that's purposeful. So it means that we do something with intent and we call that a rational 
thing to do. Uh, so, so rationality in, in the realm of praxeology means that it's with intent. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, clever or, or intelligent or anything like that. It's just that it's with some sort of intent. So, so the, the logical deduction, you, um, you, from that, you logically deduct that people value their options. First, they imagine a state of the world where they have done whatever they intend to do, and then they evaluate their options and they choose one action over the other and try to reach an end through some means. And from, from that basic framework, you can, you can come to a lot of conclusion. And at the far end, when you've log logically deducted yourself all, all the way through trade and what money is and uh, everything, you, you, you come to the conclusion that money printing is always bad and that the state is evil. So <laughs> this is the praxeology, the short version. And that's why it's such, it's, it's, it's such a hard pill for, for most people to swallow because it's understanding praxeology implies that you understand that most of what you've been told about human society and how they function is, is simply wrong. <laughs> and yeah. not a very, the way we run countries today is probably suboptimal <laughs> in very many ways. And how does this tie into the Free Cities Foundation? Because like, I guess the first question people have on their minds is like, you still have to build these free, free cities in countries that have the rules and laws of their own. And uh, how can you guarantee that the free city will be free for a long period of time? So uh, in uh, Honduras, for instance, how, how do you guarantee something like that? Maybe, maybe you don't. Yeah. So just to provide a kind of segue from the praxeology discussion into free cities, uh, one of the insights that we, yeah, we discussed on, uh, regarding praxeology is that when you, when you sort of study how humans interact, you start to realize that the consequences of bringing in coercive interference in the freely free interactions of humans often don't lead to the consequences that the person proposing those actions uh, assumes that they will. So for example, someone that proposing that we have a minimum wage, that means that people on a, on it's illegal for people to work for under a certain amount of payment per hour, people that propose those kinds of policy will tend to believe that that leads to, uh, people on lower incomes, having high, having higher incomes overall, but praxeology can show that that's necessarily not going to be the consequence of the policy in question. So praxeology really is not kind of saying it's good or bad. It's just showing that the consequences of the particular policy are not those that are intended. And really what free cities are doing is that they are recognizing the truth of, of the, the reasonings around coercion and them not leading to optimal outcomes for humans and trying to create systems whereby coercion is minimized and private property from free exchange is maximized. And so we, we work with jurisdictions where there's a high degree of autonomy for, uh, there be, there to be a very low regulatory system. So we don't prescribe what can be built within a given jurisdiction. There isn't a high level of, of variable taxation. Generally taxation is kept low so that the interactions within the, within the system can be purely voluntary. 
and we're we're working to establish these these zones in in various countries. I named a few examples at the beginning, but to the question of how you uh, how you guarantee that they're actually going to be protected, um, of course you can't guarantee it, but you can take certain steps to ensure that there is a high degree of protection. So the zones that we work in, they have got uh, constitutional guarantees. So the, I'm thinking of the Honduran zones. They have constitutional guarantee, and they also have international investment treaties that protect the investor, international investors that are within the zone, such that if their rights are undermined, then the assets of the Honduran government overseas can be subject to seizure. So that's quite a strong protection for the, for the zones. But then I would say there are also many examples of other small states that have existed in the past that have grown very, very strong, very rapidly uh, because of their economic success. And I would give, for example, Singapore as a as a as a good example of that. Um, Singapore has has more tanks than neighbouring Malaysia, despite being about a twentieth of the size and having about a fifth of the population because of its economic success. So with free cities, the more of these you develop, the more uh, you would expect them to develop the ability to protect themselves from outside aggression as well. So th th there's no guarantee, but, but you have something on them that you can, you can take away from them if they should break the contract that they have with you, which is, which is arguably even better <laughs> because it's costly for them to change the rules. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. That, that sounds very nice. There's something to be said about that as well, about contractual agreements and how, how important that is. And we can go into monetary history here and gold reserves that have been seized by, by one country, holding it for another country and so on and so forth. And praxeology can tell us about incentives and why this, these things tend to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so what are your plans for the near? near future here what's what's the ne next thing on the table for for peter young well at the foundation we've just launched a podcast the free cities podcast so it's with it's with timothy allen who's a filmmaker and kind of uh, former journalist that's that's recently joined the foundation and we recorded a load of podcast episodes in in honduras and el salvador and we're planning on uh, doing some more travel and recording some some episodes with like people working on the ground in free cities or doing free cities related stuff. So we're planning on going back to Prague together next year and then checking out some of the other communities like the Montelibro project in, in Montenegro. So that's something I'm really excited about for the medium term because I think that there's some really good stories to tell about what's happening on the ground. But because these places are often quite isolated, like Lieberstad in Norway is right down in the, in the bottom of Norway, quite hard to access. And then you've got Montenegro and then Roatan. So to actually like get people on the ground, see it and interview people that are involved and find out why, I think that's something that would really add value to this global free cities community. So that's something that's coming up uh, in the next few months that I'm pretty excited about. Oh, what do you mean by the bottom of Norway? Is that the southern part? The southern part, to be <laughs> very technical, yes. Because <laughs> this is, Norway feels like a, a country with a lot of bottoms. <laughs> I know there's a, there's a fun story about when, the, when they started to implement taxes in Norway and the, the fishermen in the fjords, they used to live, uh, you know, Norway is just mountains and fjords, most of it. Yeah. Uh, and 
the sides of the the mountains coming down to the fjords quite steep. So so the fishermen used to live up in a in a cottage on a hill somewhere, and have like a what do you call it rolling ladder uh, down to down to uh, a boat somewhere in the fjord. And when the taxman came, they just rolled the ladder up, so he couldn't reach them. So it's quite a they have quite a freedom loving history in that country. Even though right. it's it's uh, a tad socialistic at this moment in time, like like mm-hmm. every other country. Yeah, and uh, the, I guess there will be another conference in uh, in in Prague again next year. Yeah, that's that's coming up in October. So, if people want to learn about what the Free Cities projects are and what they're doing directly from the people running them, this is the one place a year, every year where we all come together. It was really good to have you there uh, last this year, uh, Nuss as well. Yeah, how did you find the event? I found it very, very refreshing after after two uh, uh, or after three Bitcoin conferences in a row. It was nice to be mingling with some people that weren't necessarily totally Bitcoin focused, because like those are the events where you can actually orange peel people, also, uh, which we we. we as you know, we took on that we took that role to heart and and tried to orange fill as many people as we could. But yeah, it was a, a beautiful event and uh, a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of nice people. Yeah, so I had a great time and I love Prague. Uh, that was my first time in Prague, so I, I always wanted to go and I, I find that city fascinating and beautiful. And I'm coming back in, in June next year for the BTC Prague conference. I saw your name on the on the list. I'm also going to be added to that website in the next few days. So, oh, see nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, we'll see each other in Prague again. Uh, having the, one of those fantastic Urquell beers. Yeah, it's it's just a lovely place, and the the the, the Parallelini Police uh, place is great as well. The Mecca Hacker Mecca, or whatever yeah. you may call it. Uh, so, so definitely looking forward to coming back there and yeah, meet all the, all of these great people. I mean, I was, I've always wondered where all the Swedish libertarians were because I couldn't find them in Sweden and they're not here in Spain either, but I found them in Prague. <laughs> There's oh, yeah. a lot of, 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 uh, Swedish libertarian families that, uh, homeschooled and just, just wanted to do their own thing. Uh, it's I, illegal to homeschool in Sweden, isn't it? Well, uh, you you can do it if you get a license, but but the, the the hurdles are too big, so people don't do that because it's really really hard to get that license. I mean, right? And it isn't really homeschooling if you if you're obligated to do whatever someone else tells you to do. It's just a waste of time. <laughs> so, uh, mm. yeah, but in there, the. I remember at one of the talks, there was a, a, a mother breastfeeding her kid with a glass of red wine in her, in her hand. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's something that you would never see in Sweden. And I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I missed that. I was in the wrong room. <laughs> what did you get up to when I was, <laughs> was running around doing the AV? Yeah. Peter, maybe you could uh, step uh, just slightly back here and go into a little more detail about how the how the Free Cities Foundation works in practice, and maybe also how 
Bitcoin ties into this? What, what role does Bitcoin play in the Free Cities Foundation? Bitcoin is a form of politically neutral money that can't be controlled by a nation state. And for that reason, it's very well suited as a money that's used both internally for trade within free cities and internationally or intercity for, for trade between uh, different free cities. So I think that Bitcoin is an incredibly important tool that will be used to make free cities uh, grow. Uh, it's already been adopted within them uh, in, in Prospera uh, in particular. There are, there's a Bitcoin uh, center there. There are, there are businesses that are being onboarded to, to use Bitcoin. I think it's an important tool to make free cities happen, but also the values that Bitcoiners tend to have, like they, they tend to believe in voluntary interactions. They believe in sovereignty over, over money. They don't like the fact that most monies are inflationary. They don't like the fact that powerful centralized entities can uh, censor people's transactions. All of that is, is, is true of, of free cities as well. Like they are also optimized for uh, voluntary interactions. They also prevent powerful entities from being able to exercise coercive authority over individual people. So in terms of the values that they represent, they're, they're very similar. And so that's why we have so many Bitcoiners that are at our conferences and are interested in, in the concept. And we, we very much welcome that. And I see these, these two movements really as just part of the same thing. They're just, you know, we're focusing more on the governance. Other people are focusing more on the monetary technology, but really we're just trying to all work together to create this, this freer world. And I think that in the future, there is going to be a world where there is more local autonomy rather than a world where, which some people foresee where we have, you know, global governance and convergence of organizations into these big monolithic institutions. I think the future is actually going to be one where we're more decentralized and more uh, locally autonomous. Yeah, beautiful. I would even go so far as to say that every time you, we use fiat currencies, where we, we, we can't be autonomous and use fiat currencies at the same time, where whenever you use them, you're, you're helping the, the counterfeiters do their thing. You're, you're helping the thief. There's, there's always a, a degree of theft involved in using money that someone can print at will. In a sense, that is central planning. Central banking is a planned economy. A central banking economy is a plan planned economy in that sense. Last time we chatted, we had a, a, a discussion about fractional reserve banking. What I know about it is that uh, the bankers can lend out uh, they, they only need to keep a fraction of what they can lend out in, in their vaults, so to speak. Right. Uh, but then there's a okay. whole then there's a whole discussion about what 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 counts as an asset and as a liability, uh, because they also count things that aren't really assets as assets uh, on their balance sheets. So 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 what's the thing there? What's what's your take on that? So. I think that the term fractional reserve banking is misleading because it implies that there is a hard reserve ratio over which banks cannot go without having to declare bankruptcy. Something like this used to be the case in the 19th century, but is no longer the case. At the moment, there are regulatory requirements that the banks 
generally have to fulfill, but they're not hard legal. Often they're not hard legal requirements that require the bank to, to go bankrupt. They tend to be liquidity requirements rather than hard reserve requirements in terms of the classic model of having to hold a certain amount of currency relative to the, the, the loans that you extend. So to take a really simple model, the fractional reserve uh, kind of classical model is that if you are lending out $9, you should have at least $1 sitting in your vault. So that if people suddenly turn up and say, I need a dollar back, you've got a dollar to give them. And obviously, this is, this is uh, the assumption is that not everyone's not going to come for their $9 at once, but there has to yeah. be a certain amount. You have to be able to meet your, your request for money on demand to a certain extent. Now, there's typically a ratio that people use is it for illustrative purposes, because it's kind of true, is, is 10 to 1. Like banks have to hold $1 for every, uh, every, every 10 that they lend out. But my contention is that actually that's not how banking, modern banking actually works. Uh, you just have to hold enough liquid reserves, which can be highly liquid instruments like government bonds or corporate bonds, uh, rather than actually the, the asset itself. And when you look at regulations like Basel three, they have liquidity requirements, but they're not hard requirements where like, oh no, you've gone over like your credit card overdraft, you've gone over, you're going to have to pay a fine. It's like they, they, they assess the bank's liquidity, like regular intervals, and they kind of work out whether they're healthy or not. But actually all banks need to be able to do uh, in, in the most circumstances is be able to fulfill their settlement obligations to people. And so for that reason, you can have quite a lot of expansion of, of credit before it becomes a hard problem for for the bank as long as people aren't like excessively claiming their deposits back all at once. So you're saying that it's way, uh, oh, now I used that channel for news phrase, didn't I? So you're saying that, but so, so you're, so you're saying, so you're saying that it's even worse than we think it is. It's more like fictional reserve banking than fractional reserve banking. I'm not even saying that it's that, that in itself that I've just described is bad. I don't think that's, that's bad. I think what's bad is that there are implicit guarantees for that system, which is inherently unstable. Yeah. I don't think that system would exist in a world where there weren't implicit guarantees for it because it's inherently no. unstable. You can't have a system where pe loans are given out for an extended period of time and you also have a corresponding um, obligation to pay those loans to, to meet anyone that wants their money's backs um, uh, demand for that money right now. There's a, there's a mismatch. Mis mismatch of timings between loans that have been extended and demand right now. So if you say people are free to take their money right now, any given point, then it only takes going over your reserve ratio for your system to collapse. So that's an unstable system. I don't think it would exist in a free market, but we have implicit guarantees like the financial services compensation scheme in the UK or the federal reserve compensation scheme in the US, which, which mean that, uh, basically banks have to bail each other out if they can't meet those deposits. And this all gives people trust in the system, uh, gives them more trust in the system than what otherwise exists and allows the system to perpetuate um, uh, artificially through a state. Yeah, it, it's really awful, isn't it? Because, like, 
if you go back to the history, this is uh, the, the the fractional reserve thing. Like if if we go through uh, monetary history one one here, like the 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 bank was just a guy holding people's gold or people's valuables in a vault to to begin with, and he he gave out receipts for whatever he had in the vaults. And then people realized that they could trade the receipts instead instead of trading heavy gold gold coins because the receipts were a better medium of exchange because they were lighter and could be carried around and you could exchange bigger sums. So that solved some sort of problem. But then quickly the banker realized that he could give out more uh, receipts than what whatever he had in his vaults, which worked fine for him and he got immensely rich from it since he could charge people interest until uh, there was what 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 you described before, which is a bank run, when everyone wanted to withdraw everything at the same time. Uh, and uh, usually that ended in the banker having to run away or being chased down with pitchforks and torches. That's until they invented the, the most evil institution of all, which is the central bank, which acts as a, a an institution that can basically bail out all the smaller banks to prevent catastrophe from happen from happening whenever a bank is about to go bankrupt. That this is a what should I say? Um, layman's version of what's actually going on. But 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 then th- this has been going on for so long, so that nowadays that they don't even need a fractional reserve. There's just this regulatory system with layers and layers of bureaucracy, and the banks have obligations to one another and. Uh, there are bailouts and bail-ins happening all, all the time. The problem is that it all incentivizes bad behavior on behalf of the banks. It all incentivizes people to take even even bigger risks. And the world we're living in now that you, you have two options. You can either save in Bitcoin or you can invest your fiat money in something in the hopes that that, that will go up over time. But you're, you're forced to take a risk uh, and that risk would, if we had sound money, which we do now, uh, that y- you wouldn't have to take the risk. You could just uh, put your money in something that you know will be the same over long periods of time. Did that whole rant like <laughs> map onto your worldview? Uh, <laughs> what, what would you add or subtract from that? Well, I mean, you said the most evil institution of all is the central bank. It's like, it's an interesting one, like how they kind of work together, the central bank and the government, because really it's more the government really that's demanding the token, giving the token value by demanding it and enabling the system. Like the central bank, yeah, like what the central bank's doing there is they are tasked with maintaining a certain amount of inflation as measured by a price index that they come up with. And then perhaps they have an employment mandate as well on top of that, but the primary task is like maintaining the slow and steady inflation. So yeah, it's like a symbiotic, interesting relationship between the government and and the central bank. But yeah, if people, there is, as you say, there is an alternative, which is that you can, you know, the way it's basically working is the government saying that if you're trading, if you're engaging in like human cooperation. Uh, which you need a monetary unit to do at scale, then we are going to take a cut of that. And we're going to take, not just we're going to take a cut of that, we're going to take it in a specific token. 
What's specific about this token? Well, the specific token is that there is a monopoly issuer of this token. There's only one person that can create it. Now, that's the definition of a, of a shitcoin in some, uh, in some circles. Like, there's only a single person that can create it, and it can be created as much as, as, much as possible. So, so the government is saying, you have to pay a certain amount of all of your economic transactions to me, and this payment must be made in this particular coin. And that the central bank is the monopoly issuer of that coin. But the thing about the central bank is that the only way it can create the, the more Shit of this coin. coin is to buy the government's debt. So the government is always being able to spend into the economy. Then it's got a source of demand for its debt. All of this is giving the, the coin the value. And the result of it is the government always is able to, to, to draw resources from the private sector. Uh, because it's able to harness the creative power of the entire economy, even if what the government wants to do is not what's best for the population. What's happening in the private sector is the reflection of people's voluntary choices. And the government is then coming in and saying, I don't think those voluntary choices are the right thing. I know better. So I'm going to take those resources away and necessarily limit what you can do in the private sector as a result. So. Yeah, if you don't want to be part of that system, then there is an alternative, which is just to use a medium of exchange, a commodity that does not rely on coercive demand for the token and inflation, uh, but instead is just a unit which cannot be inflated and which can be exchanged freely and perform the functions that you want from trade uh, without buying into that, that system I've just described. The, the central bank and the government are two sides of the same coin, pun intended. <laughs> There's another thing to be said for selling government debt, because what they do usually exchange for for new tokens of this shitcoin. We made a video about that, uh, uh, by the way, about different forms of shitcoins. Uh, in my view, there are cryptocurrencies, which are the Bitcoin clones, and there are kleptocurrencies, which are the fiat currencies that are issued by central banks. But they're... they're they're, they're also the same phenomena, really. There's some guy issuing some shit. So hence a shit coin. But back to the government buying fiat money from the central bank, they usually do that by exchanging government bonds for fiat currency, right? So yes. when the Fed, Fed creates new dollars, they get government bonds from the US government. And what yes. is a government bond? It's a promise from the government to pay something back at a later date. Yes. And how does the government make money? They take it from the population, <laughs> from the mm. productive part of the population. So the, the promise of a government bond, all that is, is a promise to be even worse in the future than they are now. It's not a promise to be the same. It's a promise to, be, to take even more in the future. And not necessarily though, is it? Yeah, well, the, it, that's is assuming it? the value of the currency is yeah, and it's, but it's measured measured from within the same system. So, so effectively, it is a promise to be worse in the future because there's no other way uh, this can go. If they're going to keep a two percent inflation, that means that prices aren't going down the way they ought to, because of the exponentiality of technological advancement, which should push every the prices of absolutely everything down and not up. The system, the the belief that that. GDP can go up and up and up over time. It's it, it it's false. Uh, it's it's a facade for like and 
the snowball is already so far down the hill, so they need to keep this lie going because it's the only way they can save their own asses because no one wants to be president during the time when the shit actually hits the fan and there's everything implodes, which it, it inevitably will do because normal inflation is just hyperinflation in slow motion, but it's the same phenomenon. Yeah. In the long run, it will necessarily have to end up like that if GDP is going, going to grow by a certain percent every year for the thing to function at all. This is so, the interesting thing. This is the interesting thing where, um, because basically the government just issues, could, the government still has the ability to, to issue fewer bonds. It can wind down its, it can wind down its, its debt by, it has to always pay back in order for the government not to go bankrupt has to pay back the interest on the debt that it's already issued. But generally what happens is the government's always like renewing, renewing, renewing the debt. It is possible for the government to still meet the obligations on its bonds by just issuing fewer bonds in the future. And what that has is that has a deflationary effect, which means the value of the currency is, is going up less than it would otherwise, like it's going. Compared to yeah, other fiat going, currencies. But, well, it's but, shrinking the overall money supply because the government is pay, is not issuing additional debt. Like you think about it, there should technically be like a sort of pool of base money. This is just kind of forever expanding because the government is issuing a, more debt each time to meet its, uh, to, in order to like spend into the economy. But the government does have the choice to, to issue fewer bonds. Uh, and, and it could, it could do that. There's no, there's no reason why that would, that lead to a, an inherent problem, but it all, but the, the, but the, what, the one thing it does have to do is it has to issue enough bonds to be able to pay the interest on the existing debt. Okay. Well, where I would disagree there is that that scenario never, never happens in reality because, because it's a different question. Yeah. The, it rarely happens in reality. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time it happened? Uh, well, it happened in, in countries, but the, it never happens all across the world economy at once, right? Not, not without it a, it doesn't really matter, does it? Cause, cause you're talking about, a, a, you're talking about a specific financial system, right? With a monopoly yeah. issue. Uh, but, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say here when, in roundabout ways is that if if we have technological advancements making the cost of production and the cost of transportation for absolutely everything in absolute terms, I mean, it takes less energy and time to, to produce and, and, uh, and transport stuff in general. Yeah. So, so, so if that trend goes on and you, at the same time, you try to keep an inflation rate of, uh, uh, around 2%. You have to yeah. print more money. You you cannot do that without printing more money, and therefore more bonds must be issued, and they, there must be more government debt, because you 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 couldn't do it. You you couldn't at the same time shrink that w without uh, ending up in deflation, which would be a good thing because everything would unwind and prices would come back to what they should be. But but that's a different that's a different discussion. The current system is is based on on the Keynesian theory of spending is always good, and therefore we need to get, keep everything perpetually uh, flowing, which is a strange term in itself. 
But yeah, I, I I see what you mean that there's a theoretic theoretically the government could just stop issuing bonds and and turn the whole thing back around again. But I think the likelihood of that happening is uh, well beyond minuscule. <laughs> Uh, I, I just don't see how that could happen in a world where where, where so many countries are, are uh, have a um, a GDP that is lower than their their debt. A lot of countries have more than a hundred percent debt that is more than a hundred percent of the GDP. Like they uh, they have to pay more interest than the, they can get money in, like Spain and Italy and and Greece and so on. But those aren't the same thing, are they? Like the, the, I mean, why, why would GDP be relevant? GDP is kind of arbitrary because it's, it's what, it's what a country spends in a given, in a year. Whereas yeah, you, know, you could, okay, like any time frame. maybe, maybe so, I'm so using, that, maybe I'm <laughs> using the wrong terms here, but what I'm getting at is that in order for them to pay the interest, they need to, to get the money from the economy and yeah. uh, in order to get the money. If the only way to acquire that money is through taxes, they will eventually stifle the economy by by uh, raising the taxes too high, and thereby stopping the whole process. and And then the crash is inevitable. How do you view the um, the future of the U.S. dollar, for instance, which is the world's reserve currency? Like, the, do you see that ever hyperinflating? And is if so, what's the time frame? Well, uh, how do you see this thing playing out? Okay, so how long has the US dollar got before hyperinflationary collapse? I think we've got at least another week of the current system being in place, possibly two. It's hard oh, to say. You're optimist. I'll have to do my calculator. <laughs> I mean, I would say that basically the reason why I don't see that the government currency is going to last um, in the long term is because they're in direct competition with a harder form of money. And money is a it was zero sum game. Well, money is a positive sum game, but there's only one competitor in, in money. So money is the most saleable good. And there are very few advantages uh, with using an alternative, uh, money if it doesn't have the saleability of a superior money. And, uh, there are certain important properties money has to have in order for it to be, uh, attractive and useful for storing value across space and time. And I would argue Bitcoin has these functions in a much more superior way than any other government currency does. And even though the US dollar is the most dominant and the largest, uh, market cap of any, of any government, uh, currency, uh, I think the logic applies to that as well. So I think eventually we're moving to a global Bitcoin standard where Bitcoin is, is used as the, uh, medium of, of trade. I would love it to happen quickly. I suspect it's going to take quite a long time and this is going to be a, uh, a journey that, that we go on for the rest of our lives and we probably won't see. I actually suspect that's true, but we're going to see it happen gradually. We're here for the early stages of it, but that's just a complete speculation and hunch. Yeah, I haven't got any empirical data to throw in there. We're, we don't need empirical data. We are a priorists, aren't we? <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're on the same page there, definitely. Peter, uh, thanks. Thanks for this. Uh, I know you got to run here. So, uh, can you can you just tell our our listeners where they can find more about you, the Free Cities Foundation, where they can connect with you? Yeah, sure. So, our website is free-cities.org, 
And if you search that, you can find links to all of our social media um, at the bottom of that page. We've got Twitter, Getter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as Nut said, we host a conference every year. If you want to learn more about free cities, that is the best place to, to do so. So if you go to lifetimeliberty.com, you can find out more about our conference uh, there. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Peter. It was great having you on. And there are so many of these uh, conversations. I feel like we're almost just getting going. Uh, we'll, we'll have to have you on again to chat more about these sorts of things, hear more about what you're doing. Hopefully that's uh, that's okay with you in uh, six months down the line or something. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, always happy. Always happy to chat. It's more like my uh, my conversations with Nut Light over a, over a beer in Madeira. <laughs> Awesome guys. All right. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. Thanks a lot. Good to good yeah. chat. Yeah. See you I soon again. <laughs> yeah. Great to have uh, have Peter on. Uh, always nice to hear about what he's doing at the Free Cities Foundation. We'll certainly have to have him on again. Yeah. Sure. And uh, uh, we should take this, well, uh, grab this opportunity to shill a bunch of stuff here. Exactly. So for, that's, first that's, of all, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, download the Orange Fill app. It's awesome. Uh, I had the pleasure of being in a spaces with them yesterday. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, I heard about their roadmap. The app is about 20% done, if it's ever going to be done. But there's a lot of cool things coming down the line. So check out the Orange Pill app, uh, available for iOS at the moment, but it's coming for Android 2 in January, I think. And it's not a dating app, just to, just to remind everyone, because... Women in Bitcoin are more scarce than Bitcoin itself. Yeah, and uh, but you, however, you can use it as a dating app if you wish, but it's it's not designed to be a dating app. Well, it was designed to be a dating app at one point, but it's not one at the moment. I, I just love that Mateo. that phrase. <laughs> enough of it. It's hilarious. Matteo came up with a good one with that. Yeah. Now uh, I use it constantly. And check out Consensus Network, uh, BitcoinBook.shop is one of their addresses or a consensus with a K, uh, you'll find my books there and uh, translations of other people's books. I have a bunch of stuff coming down the line. Uh, the Praxeology book I mentioned, there's a Geyser fund set, set up for that. So if you want to support that project that's on Geyser, uh, um, and there's knutsfarnum.com if you want to buy my some of my shit. Um, and there are some other uh, pods coming on consensus. There's a lot of things happening on consensus uh, down the down the line as well. Uh, is, yeah. We're we're uh, collaborating with Emeralize, which is an app you should uh, check out. We uh, had a conversation with Santos the other week, and uh, that was really cool. So uh, yeah, bear markets are for building, as they say, and we're we're building. We're building a lot of stuff. Check out the free Madeira. Uh, .com webpage as well and uh, that project and what we're doing on Madeira and uh, see you next time Merry Christmas uh, well this won't be released until way after Christmas but I hope oh, yeah, you have a Merry Christmas exactly we're, yeah. we're taking our Christmas break here so yeah as you say I uh, hope, you, hope you had a good Christmas happy birthday to baby Jesus for you religious people yeah yeah happy birthday Jesus a, a very very important person was born on the 25th of December, mm -hmm. a long time ago that had a huge impact on humanity. Uh, and it's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Can you guess who? I, I've, there's a few December 25th birthdays, um, and I'm a little scared to guess. Uh, you want to just tell us? 
Isaac Newton. Isaac. Oh, so, so yeah, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Happy birthday, Isaac Newton. Happy birthday, Isaac Newton. Yeah. In uh, in the past, from when this comes out, but uh, you know. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. Hope you had a good one, Isaac. Hope you had a good one. Uh, this has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.